only thing that I have control over is my own conduct, is a little piece of real estate inside my own shoes. And, you know, I have to get up every morning and say, reporting for duty, sir, and then go out and push the rock up the hill. And whether I get it over there or not is irrelevant. Whether I win the presidency or not is ultimately irrelevant. I only have control over what I do on a day-to-day basis. The, the outcomes are all in God's hands. And I have to have faith in that. And I can feel peaceful and content within myself, which is ultimately the objective, as long as I continue to be of service and just keep doing the next right thing. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. This show is meant to be a guide for you. We're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day, that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the podcast. So today we have two... Extraordinary people here with us, Bobby Kennedy Jr. and his wife, Cheryl Hines. And it also happens to be my 44th birthday today. And I feel more myself and I feel braver and more in love with life and in more in touch with what's really possible than ever. And so it seems fitting that they are my guests today. I met Cheryl first. We became friends. Actually, I met her on this podcast and uh, we wound up moving into the neighborhood where they live and we just built a friendship as people, as neighbors. And uh, I didn't really know much about Bobby Kennedy Jr. other than what people were saying during the pandemic, but I got to know them as people, as friends. And I got to really hear and listen and my whole life, I feel like I've been a pretty good judge of character. My whole life, I feel like I can spot when somebody has an open heart, when somebody's coming from vulnerability, from humility, from sincerity. And oh my gosh, sincerity is like the rarest thing on the planet. And uh, I just admire that quality. I had a birthday party over the weekend and Andy Grammer and his wife Asia were here. 
and my friend Ben Savage and his wife Tessa were here and then a bunch of other people that you wouldn't know by name, but trust me when I tell you that the cost of admission to this party was goodness, kindness, being willing to love other people and really willing to see other people. And I feel so grateful that I have friends like that in my life. And uh, I wanted to put this episode on because we recently had an event at my house for Bobby and Cheryl to hear them out, to celebrate them, to listen to his ideas. And it was really an amazing, amazing event. And Alicia Silverstone was here and she helped me to invite a bunch of beautiful souls. And it was really amazing how many people came and how much love was in the room. And I just want that. I want to live in a world where everybody's welcome to the table, where we are all willing to hear different voices and we do it with grace and respect and love. And so in the name of all of that, um, I want to share this episode with you. And um, I hope to continue to allow this to be a space for people to talk and have different views and still feel that they matter and they're seen. And I think that that's what makes the world beautiful is that we all have a different, a different color of thread to weave into the tapestry. But I think that uh, you'll find it beautiful, interesting, but I think that you'll find, uh, that there might be a lot of value in uh, what gets shared uh, on this episode. And I hope it's received uh, in the way that it was intended with just a vote for anyone who comes to the table with an open heart and um, with a real courage to want to connect with everyone, no matter where they come from. That to me seems like what oneness is really about. So just to give you a little background, Cheryl Hines has been on the podcast before. And if you don't know who she is, uh, she is an actress and she's also just an amazing human being. She's an amazing mom. She and her daughter just actually started a beautiful brand together, which you might want to check out. And uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is really someone who's been working on behalf of this world for a long time. He is the founder of the Waterkeeper Alliance and founder of the Children's Health Defense. He's also an acclaimed environmentalist attorney, a New York Times bestselling author, and he's now in the same footsteps of his uncle, John F. Kennedy Jr., and his father, Robert F. Kennedy. He is running for president of the United States. It's been an honor to be friends with him and Cheryl. It is such a gift to feel seen and heard um, by people who want to hear and want to know what's in the hearts of, of all of us. And in this episode, you'll hear a real heart-to-heart conversation about his vision for this country, what Cheryl sees. You're going to hear about the personal journey of searching for truth and really what it means to live authentically, letting go of what other people think of you, just really trying to be on the one side, which is the side of love. Not only do these two human beings have so much courage, but um, Bobby has more resilience than I think anyone I've ever met. His goodness and his belief in people is like nothing else. 
I think that this will resonate and hopefully spread beauty wherever it's heard. So without further ado, please welcome the one and only Bobby Kennedy Jr. and his wife, Cheryl Hines. Okay, I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes, close your eyes. Mm. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. This is the moment you want to be present for. Oh my gosh, we're so busy. And in this moment, there is so much love in this room. Feel it. There is so much courage in this room. Feel that. Guys, listen. It's a really big world. It's a very busy world. And we all know that the most impressive thing in the world is love and courage. And your legacy is that. It's really, truly, like the most powerful thing is not what people say. It's their resonance, right? It's their compassion, their passion, their conviction. And people can say a lot of things, right? But it's how you feel when you are with that person, when you hear that person speak. So it is such an honor to know you both to be friends with these people, to be in their life, to be in in the same time in history of the two of you is amazing. And I love you so much. And you are love to me, both of you. When we moved into this house, there was a note from Cheryl Hines at my door saying, I'm so happy you moved to Brentwood. Here's a bunch of things. These are my favorite plates. And you gave me these plates with like holes in them. Yes, so you could put your strawberries in and rinse them. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Here's what we're going to do tonight. First of all, we're going to set our sights on the vision that this human being has, and we're going to memorize it, just a download. It's not a belief, it's a knowing. It's a knowing that we are ready for goodness. We're ready for real courage. And every single one of you will remember that you were here. This is history. So good for you. And thank you, Alicia Silverstone, for helping me to invite all of our friends. So here's what's going to happen tonight. I'm going to interview the two of these beautiful people. And I'm going to start with some questions about the two of them as a couple, because the truth is that we, we make people into caricatures. And really, they are real people and really cool people. They happen to be. Um, so we're going to talk to them a little bit as a couple, and then we're going to find out all the things that are on his mind and on his heart, and then we'll open it up to questions. How does that sound? Okay, so most important question, how did you guys meet? I happen to be on the inside of this, but it's the funniest, cutest thing. Who maybe was part of introducing you? Oh, I'm sure he doesn't want us to So don't say, but how did you guys meet? Where were you that you met? We were in... In Banff. Yeah, Canada. In Canada. And I had been living with Larry for... David. Two... David! You'd been living with Larry? Yeah, during the summer times for a couple of years. What's it like to live with Larry, David? It's very... It's very smooth. Yeah, entertaining. Yeah. And that was when he was just finishing Seinfeld. And then he started working on Curb. And the first time I met Cheryl was when he brought her to a ski event. We had our big fundraiser, Waterkeeper Lives. I was running a big environmental group. It was the biggest water protection group in the world. And we raised our money through a pro-celebrity ski race every year. We moved around, but we were doing a lot of them in Banff. 
And it was always, all the celebrities back out at the last minute, and so then you have to scramble and get new ones in. By Cheryl. It's not a very nice way to... I was so desperate. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Cheryl came in the first one. I think, were you married already then? Yes, I was married. <laughs> well, they were friends for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think for seven years. Yes, yeah. like acquaintances. I would I would see you once a year at the at a waterkeeper event. Yeah, but you were pleasant. <laughs> and then who was into who first? Well, then both of us were getting both filed divorce at the same time, and that's when the crisis happened at the waterkeeper event that year. And a whole lot of celebrities dropped out at the last minute, and my assistant said. We should get Cheryl to come up. I don't know why I like the go-to. Uh, everybody, nobody else can make it, so let's get Heinz. You had a birthday party. You had some... I, was, I was having a Christmas party, and I said, oh, I can't do it, because I just invited people over. Yeah, and then I talked her into it. And then... I had to tell everybody not to come over. I was like, I guess I'm going to go to this event. Go ahead. Yeah, and that, and I think we sat next to each other at dinner that night, and there was instant chemistry, I would say. Yeah. But then I thought, felt like Larry has all these rules that Uh-oh. people are supposed to know that aren't written down anywhere, but everybody knows them. And I knew it would be a rule that I could not date his television wife. But I had to, you know, so you asked him? I went to the Carlisle Hotel. Yeah. At around 11 o'clock at night. He was shooting that year. They were shooting Curb. In, in New York. In New York. And I went up to the Carlisle Hotel, and I, I was worried that he would say no, and then I'd have to make a decision between him and her. But he, Friend uh, or wife? <laughs> but he, um, he really surprised me because he said that that's wonderful, and he said she's the best human being that I've ever met. And he said, she is absolutely beloved in this industry. She's the only person that I know of in this industry that doesn't have a single enemy. And he said, I'm really happy for you. But that's not what he said to her. No, he said, it'll never work. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, he was kidding, not kidding. Because I was saying, it wouldn't matter who I said I was going to date. That would have been the response. Whether it was Bobby or, you know. I just said George Clooney. And then a lot of things that happened in my relationship with Larry ended up on the show. And that incident ended up on the show with Ted Danson coming to Larry and asking right. him for permission to date Cheryl. And I think he just said, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so I know that's what he was secretly thinking. <laughs> okay, so Cheryl. Yes? Everybody knows he grew up in a small town called Tallahassee, Florida. Yeah. I went to college, go Knowles. And um, <laughs> did you ever in your wildest dreams think that one day you'd be sitting in the seat? Did you ever think this is a potential that you would be married to somebody who's going to be the president of the United States? No, this is uh, this is beyond my imagination. You know, I grew up. She couldn't think of that a, a year ago. No, yeah. that's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked. 
<laughs> but, you know, I grew up in a in Tallahassee, and my mom, we were not a political family. And I remember asking my mom who she voted for, and she said, that is none of your business, and that is a secret. I was like, oh, politics, that's are weird. I didn't know there were secrets about who you vote for. So that was my upbringing, was not a politically inspired environment. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I've been in the acting realm, so I never, ever thought I would be sitting next to my husband who's running for president. So this is a something I'm sharing with all of you. This is a surprise, an exciting surprise. Amazing. It's so amazing to have real human beings, like literally like the girl next door and people you feel who see you, who get you, who can be ambassadors for you. And so I feel like it's one thing where people talk about what's going wrong. People love to talk about what's going wrong. And we're, we'll talk about that in a second. But I think what great leaders do is they have such clear vision that everybody else can see their vision because you see it so clearly. And so I'd love you to have a moment to like share with us what you think it could look like. What could this country look like the way you see it? Well, I'm running because I feel like the country got derailed on the wrong track and we forgot who we were. Now, I grew up thinking that this country was an exemplary nation, that we were the city on the hill. And, you know, when I was a kid, America was admired universally around the globe. And we were not only admired, but we were regarded as a moral authority. And people wanted our leadership. They wanted our leadership. They didn't want bullying and they knew the difference. And I told this story the other day that my my uncle had an abhorrence for war. My uncle, John Kennedy, he once was asked by his one of his two best friends, Ben Bradley, who was the publisher of the Washington Post, what do you want on your gravestone? Uh, And he said to Bradley immediately, without even thinking about it, he kept the peace. He had been, you know, he had fought in World War II. He had seen the bloodshed. He had a lot of friends killed. His ship had gotten sink. He was declared killed in action for a while until you know he was found on this island in the Solomon Islands. He and his crew and his father hated war, protested World War One, and he said that the principal job. He told Bradley the principal job of the president of the United States is to keep the country out of war, and he was surrounded by people and intelligence apparatus and by Joint Chiefs of Staff who felt the opposite and who felt like war was inevitable, particularly with the Soviet Union, the sooner that it came, the better. And he found out after he was two months in office, he was lied to by the three top officers of the CIA, by Alan Dulles, by Charles Cabell, and by Richard Bissell about the Bay of Pigs, and he did not want to invade Cuba. At that time, there were no Soviet troops in Cuba, and he felt like the United States was going to look like a bully around the world if it invaded this island that had made its own choice about a a system that we didn't like, but we really had no business interfering with it. And he, he didn't want the U.S. to have anything to do with it. And when those men landed on the beach and they were being killed and captured, he confronted Dulles, he confronted Louis Lemitzer, and then he came out of that, and they said, you need to send in air cover, and we need to get the U.S. military involved. 
And he came out of that meeting and he said, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. I was two months into his presidency, three days before his inauguration, which I attended. I was six years old at that time. Eisenhower, who was outgoing, gave probably what was probably the most important speech in United States history, where he warned the American people against the rise of a military industrial complex and a scientific technocracy that would subvert American democracy, that would overwhelm and devour all of the critical fundamental values of our nation. And my uncle, at that moment, when he walked out of that, that meeting with his, you know, these top military aides, understood that that's what was happening to him. And he spent the next thousand days of his presidency fighting, pushing back with his military advisors, his intelligence apparatus who wanted to bring the country to war. He kept us out of Laos. He kept us out of Vietnam. They wanted 250,000 ground troops. He sent 16,000 advisors. And they were that's fewer people than he sent to the University of Mississippi to Jackson to get uh, James Meredith, one black man, into you know the university. So he sent Green Berets over there who were not allowed to participate in, in combat by the rules of engagement. Some of them did anyway. Seventy-five of them were killed over that three-year period. And when he found that out in October of 1963, that 75 Americans had died in Vietnam, he said, we're not going to lose one more man. And he signed a national security order ordering all troops out of Vietnam. Oh, he spent his presidency not putting any combat troops anywhere in the world. And as soon as he was killed, Johnson remanded that order, and then a year later, the Tonkin Gulf resolution occurred, and we sent 250,000 men, which they all wanted, and it became America's war. And 56,000 Americans did not come back, including my cousin George Skakel, who died during the Tet Offensive. And my father ran against that war in 68 and was killed in the process. And Nixon then, you know, sent 500,000 troops over there. And since then, we've had a series of traumas in this country. The death of Martin Luther King, who was campaigning, who had displaced the civil rights battle as a peace emissary against Vietnam. My father killed two months later. The Vietnam War that then followed up until 73 and the 9-11 attacks and ultimately COVID. And each of that those traumas has pushed us further and further down the path that Eisenhower predicted, which is the you know domination of this country, that our country would become an imperium abroad and a national security state at home. And that's what the founders of our country had predicted. John Quincy Adams said, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Paul Kennedy is a Yale historian and has studied the decline of empires. And he did this wonderful book about the rise and decline of empires. For 500 years, he looks at every empire. And every one of them has been destroyed for the same reason, overextending its military abroad. And, you know, we've now are doing the exact same thing, which Eisenhower predicted. We have become a security state at home, a garrison state, a surveillance state at home. And we've become, you know, an imperium abroad. And my uncle understood that the function of the CIA was to fought, to revive the military-industrial complex with a constant pipeline of new wars.
And that, to me, was the fork in the road. And everybody predicted this is where we'd end up. And in the last two years, you know, we saw the whole thing culminate in COVID, which with all of our constitutional rights being subverted, you know, our, our right free speech for the first time in history, the government was involved in silencing people, including me specifically, but more importantly, doctors and scientists who were questioning the, you know, the government approach, you know, and the government approach should have been questioned. You know, the things that they decided, lockdowns, et cetera, didn't work. We ended up having the worst death count of any country in the world. We have 4.2% of the global population. We had 16% of the COVID deaths. So we did worse than any nation in the world. And then at the same time, you know, they got rid of jury trials on the, the Seventh Amendment. They got rid of freedom of religion. They closed every church in this country for a year without scientific citation, with no democratic process, no notice and comment rulemaking, no environmental impact statement. They got rid of the right to assembly by telling us we had to social distance. Uh, they got rid of property rights. They closed down 3.3 million businesses without due process, without just compensation. They got rid of the Fourth Amendment, prohibitions against warrantless searches and seizures, with all this track and trace surveillance and us having to produce our medical records to leave our home or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people can say, well, it was a crisis. But there is no pandemic exception in the United States Constitution. And the founders, the framers, knew all about pandemics. There were two epidemics during the Revolution. One, a malaria epidemic that decimated the armies of Virginia, and then more seriously, a smallpox epidemic that completely paralyzed the army of New England at the very time when we had conquered Montreal. And all the framers knew that when they wrote the Constitution. And between the end of the, of the war and the nine years until we ratified the Constitution, there were epidemics in every city that killed tens of thousands of people, including many of the family members of the people who signed the Constitution, yellow fever, cholera, smallpox. And yet they did not put a pandemic exception in the Constitution. They wrote that document for hard times, not for easy times. And I'll just say one other thing, which is during the Civil War, Confederates were sending provocateurs into the northern cities to incite violence and to stir up draft riots, which were very damaging to our national security. And Abraham Lincoln correctly tried to and banished the right of habeas corpus and said, we can arrest these people on site and imprison them without charges. And the Supreme Court stepped in. Roger Taney, who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court, stepped in and said, you can't do it. He said, it, it doesn't matter even if... They, and at that time, we had lost 659,000 troops. It's the equivalent of 7.2 million people today, so much worse than COVID. And our country was this far from being torn to pieces. And yet the court said, it doesn't matter. Even if the country is going to die, you cannot banish the Constitution. And yet they did it. And, you know, to me, that was just unacceptable. So, you know, and that's why I ended up in this race. And I told Cheryl, I told her this the other day. There's two times in my view that God has blinded her. And one of them was when I asked her to marry me. And she said, yes, which was insane at the time. I was kind of a mess at that time. And then the second was when I, I said, I don't, what do you think about me running for president? 
She's like, go get him. After a great conversation. Oh my gosh. I mean, he's so brilliant. You could just sit and listen for hours and learn actual everything you need to know about history. You know, you say these things and we, we know these things, right? Because we read these facts in books, right? That your father and your uncle were killed. And we, we talk about it like it's like, oh, you know, there's sushi over there. Yeah, of course. We Like you were a child who lost your two greatest role models and mentors. And there's a, I don't know why I'm going to quote Nora Ephron, but I'm going to. <laughs> you know, there's a scene in Sleepless in Seattle where he's on the phone and, uh, she says, so what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I'm going to breathe in and out every day. That's what I'm going to try to do first. And I literally sit here and I'm like, you were a 14-year-old kid whose father was murdered, a 10-year-old kid whose uncle was murdered, and then you were able to breathe in and out, learn how to go to Harvard, take a hot girl on a date, and then run for president of the United States. Can we just give it up for some courage? I mean, is anybody in my lifetime, right? I was born in 79. Don't tell anyone. But no, I mean, is there anyone in your lifetime, if you're my age around that, who you've ever seen run for president who's actually a person of courage like this? Like what you've lived through. And so I'm curious for you, like how did those two very seminal events make you the person that you are today? You know, I would say my father's life had more impact on me than his death and the way that he lived his life and my uncle as well. I feel like very fortunate. And my mom has always said, if she hears anybody kind of feeling sorry for themselves, she says, everybody takes their licks, you know, and you guys were lucky, and we, which we were. Because we had, you know, there's a lot of kids in Watts and Harlem or in Appalachia who lose a dad and they don't have what we had, which was this huge family that was very, very supportive and, you know, a deep, I'd say, religious and spiritual background that was part of our, you know, the gestalt in our our home growing up. A loving family and then kind of a legacy that made sense out of, you know, the chaos that brought some order to the chaos and some direction to us. And then, you know, the resources that we could go get educations and without a lot of struggle, Cheryl, I probably shouldn't tell this, but... But then don't. <laughs> she, she came from a very, let's say, modest means. Yes. She slept in a, the same bed with her mother until she left high school and put herself through college working as a waitress and a bartender. I didn't have to do that. I had resources where I could do that and I could get into almost any place I wanted to. And then I had a lot of people around me who supported me. So I feel like, you know, my life was fortunate. You know, my dad, about two weeks before he died, he gave me a book and it was a book by Camus and it was called The Plague. It was about a a city in North Africa that's unnamed that is being ravaged by an unnamed illness that they don't know, that they don't understand. It's about a doctor and how he relates to it. And he's torn because they don't know how to treat it and they know that it's contagious so that if you have contact with somebody who has it, you're highly likely to die. Very, very high infection fatality, right? And that the only way to stay safe is to stay locked up. 
And he, the first half of the book is him having a conversation in his head that, you know, his job and his mission in life is to treat people who are ill. And yet there's nothing he can really do to help anybody. He doesn't know what it is. And, you know, he's very likely to die if he goes out and does his profession. But he has this debate with himself. And in the end, he goes out and he consoles people. And that act, that sacrifice that he makes of doing his duty brings order to the chaos and meaning to this very, very chaotic universe. And my father, when he handed me this book, he gave it to me with this particular intensity, because a lot of times he'd give me books to read, but he gave me this and he said, I want you to read this. And he said it very, very directly. So in the years after he died, I read that book two or three times trying to decipher exactly what it was that he gave me. And what I feel like I know what that is now. And Camus was an existentialist and he was kind of a legatee of the Stoics, which were Greek and to some extent Roman ideology. And the big hero of the Stoics was Sisyphus. And Sisyphus did an act that caused him to be cursed by the gods to push a stone up the hill for all of eternity. And he would get it to the top of the hill, but he'd never be able to get it over and it would always roll back on him. And then he'd have to walk down and oftentimes injured, etc., and do it again. But in the minds of the Stoic, Sisyphus was a happy man because he put his shoulder to the wheel. He knew what his duty was, and he did it. And that is kind of how we contribute to the order of the universe. And, you know, a lot of people have said to me, because I, from taking positions on the medical freedom issues, that I've suffered a lot, the loss of a lot of friendships, of family members, the income, of status, of my capacity to, you know, these political relationships that I had easily made over all of my life, and I've lost almost all of them, hmm. and all of these things. And uh, people say, oh, that's very hard on you. And I'm, I feel like, no, that's not hard on me. It's a privilege to have something that, a duty that I'm supposed to do. And what I try to do the way that I try to live my life is I never make predictions and I try to have no expectations because if you don't have expectations, you never get disappointed. And the only thing that I have control over is my own conduct, is a little piece of real estate inside my own shoes. And, you know, I have to get up every morning and say, reporting for duty, sir, and then go out and push the rock up the hill. And whether I get it over there or not is irrelevant. Whether I win the presidency or not is ultimately irrelevant. I only have control over what I do on a day-to-day basis. The, the outcomes are all in God's hands. And I have to have faith in that. And I can feel peaceful and content within myself, which is ultimately the objective, as long as I continue to be of service and just keep doing the next right thing. Oh, if you ask me the legacy that my dad, I'd say that was one of the important lessons. Don't you feel so honored that you're sitting here getting to hear that? Yeah. It's the best place to be in the world right now. I'll just tell you one other thing about that. You know, if you live your life in that way, it gives you a resilience. It gives me a resilience, I feel, because I was, you know, for the third, for almost 40 years, I did environmental advocacy. And if you're an environmentalist, every victory that you get is temporary and every loss that you suffer is permanent. You lose a species, you're never going to get. God's not making another one if we can't make it. And if you lose a sacred place, it's usually gone forever. There's no way to restore it. 
And so a lot of my colleagues, including my principal mentor, ended up just getting crushed and burning out and withdrawing from everything because those disappointments were so soul-crushing for them. And I saw that happen, and I just made a decision. I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm just going to focus on what I do. And then God has the outcomes in his hands or her hands. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that gives me a kind of resilience because I, I feel like I can never be defeated because every time I get knocked down, I'm just going to stand up again because it's irrelevant to me. And that has made me relentless. Thank you. It's unbelievable. We went and we were watching uh, this movie, Air. Why am I just quoting movies all the time? Um, it's good. It's a good movie. Anyway, so uh, we were talking about Michael Jordan and like, what is it with Michael Jordan is that when kids would buy these shoes, it wasn't it wasn't about basketball. It was that they want to be like this human being. They want to be like him. And of all the people who are on the earth today, like, I want to be just like you. I told you when you came to my house... And, of course, he wants to play 20 questions with my kids because that's what we're And you wouldn't stop, by the way. I was like, all right, let's wrap. You're like, no, we're doing it again. Another round. Um, no, he's the cutest. He loves kids so much. He's like, I pick up rattlesnakes with my own hands. You want to see? My yeah. kids love him. But I told you I want to be just like you because we live in a time where people will choose to belong over being authentic. And you will choose to be authentic. And then that's the only way you'll even know if you belong. Because if you're not authentic, and you don't even belong to yourself. So then if somebody thinks that they belong to you, but you're not telling the truth, nobody belongs to anyone. And you are like the person who I think, one, probably I'm going to go out on a limb and say one of the main reasons that you're all sitting in this room is because there's an amount of courage in that that you just have never seen, especially in this time where somebody can just be who they are and say what they need to say on behalf of people who are afraid to say anything. And you talked a lot about your faith. You've said it now like several times. And I grew up with really no connection to my faith until I went to Jerusalem after college. I thought I was going to be there for three months. I stayed for three years. It was like hitting Control-Alt-Delete on the software program. And I, I feel like you. I just let go and like connected to something much bigger than myself. Like I can't, Kathy Heller can't have this conversation with you, but my soul can have this conversation with you because you're so loving. You make it so easy. So, like, this little ego of mine, like, she's, forget it. She's on the floor over there. She can't have this <laughs> But the point is, you have this amazing sense of faith, and I know how important that is to you. Tell everybody where that comes from and what you learned in your home about God and about faith that maybe we could borrow. Well, first of all, I will say this, that the one thing, I mean, I feel like what other people think of me is or say about me is not my business that you know that's just part of the noise but there's one person that I do you know completely dependent on which is this one here you know it's a big burden on her because I've said to her a lot you're the only one that can actually change the way that I feel about life because her love is so important to me so I'm not completely independent but for the most part I learned that you know, part of it I learned from my family and part of it I just learned from life, you know, from recovery from addiction and just all of the little things that we learn in living. You cannot worry what other people think about you. You just can't worry about it. It's irrelevant. It just causes drama and it causes a loss of energy and it's irrelevant. 
And I think that's what you and Larry David have in common. <laughs> They'll do and say anything, and who cares what people say about her? That's what it is. That's a, she has a type. She has a type. I have a type. <laughs> Cheryl, what about for you? Like, I mean, obviously, you've heard him say all these things a zillion times. I know how it is as a wife. You're like, you're telling that story again? Get <laughs> down. <laughs> what do you feel the American people could use a little bit more of right now? I think a lot of people feel forgotten. A lot of people feel like they've been left behind. And several years ago, people were encouraged to hate each other. Yeah. And it's lingering. It really put us in a state where people turned on each other and stopped looking at what they have in common and started looking at how someone's different from them and decided that they were going to hate them for it. So I feel like we need somebody to say, let's stop the hate. Let's find out what we have in common and work together in a positive force because it's been missing. It's still missing. And actually, that's why I feel like Bobby, why he should be running for president, because he can do that. I mean, I, I told this story when I was at my announcement that something that happened to me after my dad died. You know, he was killed here in, in L.A., and I was with him when he died. And then we brought him across the country in Air Force Two. Well, we brought his body back and, and waked him at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and we took him on a train ride from Penn Station in New York to Union Station in Washington, D.C., and it's usually a two-and-a-half-hour ride. But it was seven and a half hours because there were more than two million people on the train tracks. And that crowd of people, I was 14 years old and I was standing a lot of time between the cars, but also, you know, in the caboose with my dad where his casket was laid out. And it was laid out high enough that people could see it so that people could see it from the tracks. But it was just this incredible cross-section of the American public. There was in all the big train stations in the urban areas like Trenton, Newark, uh, Baltimore, and Wilmington were these large, huge crowds just jammed with black faces singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And we would go through those stations in a crawl. And then along the tracks, there were, you know, white people, a lot of them in military uniform, hippies and tie-dye t-shirts. There were a Boy Scout troop standing on the side saluting. I, I saw a baseball game, a Little League game, all the players on, on both sides were standing with their, you know, their hands, their hearts, and the coaches and all the crowd. When we were in Delaware, there were seven nuns, six or seven nuns, uh, standing in the back of a yellow pickup truck, and they were all waving rosaries or handkerchiefs. And there were a lot of mothers, there were rabbis and priests, and everything, there were mothers uh, and people holding up uh, signs that said, goodbye, Bobby, uh, flags, and signs that say, pray for us, Bobby. And... When we got to Washington, President Johnson met us at the train station and we drove my father's casket up to Arlington and we drove past the mall. And on the mall, there were probably about six or eight thousand men encamped. And it was the Poor People's Campaign, which my father had suggested to Martin Luther King and then helped him organize because both of them were worried that the war in Vietnam had bankrupted the war on poverty. 
And my father said to King, poor people are not going to get their share of what's happening in this country unless they get politically active. And let's bring them all to Washington and keep them camped outside of Congress till Congress does something. And so you had all these men who were camped in these plastic paper shacks. Um, and they all came to the sidewalk and they stood with their hands at their hearts. They're holding their hats and their heads bowed as we drove past them up the hill to Arlington to bury my father next to his brother. And I remember four years later, this was a cross-section of the American public that I saw on every campaign that I had participated in since I was a little boy, which was many. And four years later, I was at college in Boston, and I was studying politics, American politics, and I, I saw this demographic data that showed that most of those white people who had stood on the tracks in Baltimore north of Baltimore and south of Baltimore, and who had supported my father during the primaries. In 1972, the overwhelming majority of them had supported not George McGovern, who was completely aligned with my dad, but George Wallace, who was antithetical to my father, you know, a really vicious segregationist and a hate-filled person who I ended up in his old age kind of befriending. And I lived two years in Alabama, but at that time he was a very hateful person. And all of these white people who had supported my dad four years later were supporting him. And it, it struck me at that time, and it's occurred to me many, many times since, that every nation, like every individual, has a darker side and a lighter side, and that the easiest thing for a political leader to do is to appeal to our anger, our bigotry, our fear, our greed, our misogyny, xenophobia, and press all of the, you know, or the stir up all the alchemies of demagoguery. And that it's much more difficult to do what my father was trying to do, which was to try to get us to transcend our narrow self-interest and see ourselves as part of a community, a community that we would really take risks for, you know, personal risk to do something for everybody else. And you have to be of a certain mindset to do that. He was trying to convince people that they were on a part of a noble adventure and to find the heroes inside of themselves and to see themselves as Americans rather than Republicans or Democrats or whatever. And he succeeded in doing that. He succeeded, I think, mainly just by telling people the truth, ruthlessly telling them the truth. He succeeded in the last day of his life. He won the most urban state in this country, California, and the most rural state, South Dakota. And those people who voted later for Wallace are testimony to the fact that you can take people who are filled with hate and you can give them a different vision and inspire them to work on behalf of, of communities and to ignore the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people only by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind, that we have to look at ourselves as part of a, a community. I mean, I think what you just said is probably the most powerful thing. I just want to say... As I said earlier, words don't teach. Experience teaches. It's the way somebody sits with you when you're going through a really hard night. It's the way somebody's there to celebrate with you because they know how hard you work. It's the feeling. And you, it's your resonance. That's your legacy. It's not how beautiful the words are. It's how embodying of those words you are. And no one can stand where you stand and say those words. And that is the medicine that the American people need right now. Is that that love? Yeah, you're the best. And um, I think what's really beautiful about all of you sitting here is that 
as he was saying, like if you take something and put it in the sun, it has an equal shadow, right? And everybody who's in this room has a capacity to open their heart and bet on the oneness of this country. That's what you're doing by sitting in this room. That's what you voted for tonight. You voted for us being one. My rabbi in Jerusalem, David Aaron, he says, you're only someone because you're some of the one. There's just oneness. That's it. There is no two sides. There's one side. It's called the human race. It's one side. It's called love. It's called we got to do this together. And there is no single family in the history of America that has loved this country together and loved this country more into life than you and your family. And it is a gorgeous honor to be in this room with you. So I wonder if this country is willing to be courageous enough to merit this kind of leadership. And I think that we can. I think that quite often people patronize people. They speak to their ego, but their soul is always right there. And their soul wants to connect and it wants to see further. And I think, as I said earlier, what great leaders do is they don't look with their eyes. They look with their heart. And from their heart, they see for miles. And there's no greater person in this world right in this moment who is sitting on the laps of giants who showed this country the furthest we've ever seen. Is it true or is it not? The truth. Yeah. What your family has done for civil rights, we need to get that back. What do you think? Yeah. I agree. (laughs) By the way, I just want to say, in case anybody sneaks out before you leave, that if you go to Kennedy24.com, you can make a donation to this campaign. And I really hope that you will. And more than making a donation, because the truth is, there's not like that much you can donate on that website. But if you want to get involved in bigger donations, you can talk to me. I can tell you how to do that. But more than making a donation is opening your heart and sharing this. Because the world likes to smear people and just call people names. like As if that's the totality of who he is or anything about what he has to say. Because... Let's face it, without the Joker, Batman's not Batman, and he's Batman. And the whole world right now is the Joker. And so if you feel something in your soul just tell you, like, you got the download, share that with five people. And if you want to host an event like this or something like that, let me know, because you guys, we're, we're, we're moving into the White House, you guys. That's okay. <laughs> And, and how funny if Larry David winds up being responsible for you winding up in the White House. <laughs> it is a curb episode. It's like it is the a best curb episode. episode ever. Yeah. I also just want to remind you that, you know, there's something in the Talmud that says that before you're even born, it's predetermined, like, what events you're going to be at. Like, what weddings you'll be at, what Sweet Sixteens you'll be at. It was, like... It was a deal made in heaven that you would particularly be sitting in this room. And so you really matter and it really counts that you were here. It means the world that you took the time to come here. And I really feel like what happened tonight wasn't just a conversation. It was like, this person is just a walking open heart. And I feel like words from the heart just enter the heart. Raise your hand if you feel like the words entered your heart tonight. Okay. So what I'm going to ask you to do is something you've wanted to do your whole life, which is to have the courage to be totally yourself. And so, yes, you should go to Kennedy24.com and donate, but even more like for yourself and for your children and their children, you should post that you were here tonight. 
And you have to have the courage to set down what people think of you. Because here's the deal, you guys. People don't even see you. They see what they're willing to see. They only see their projection. That's all people are doing all the time is projecting. So you get to decide that you're going to just come clean and come out and be yourself. Okay? And that is probably the greatest gift that you give to the American people because people are afraid. But if you post and you just be yourself, you're going to give 10 of your friends courage that you can give them because of that move. That's a pretty powerful thing to do. You guys with me? So um, I don't know exactly when Bobby's going to leave, but I mean, take selfies. And I just want to say, you know, Cheryl had foot surgery like 10 minutes ago and she's here. <laughs> and would you like to say something? Can we also ask they please include hashtag Kennedy24? Yeah. Hashtag Kennedy24. And I just want to say, uh, I feel like I'm 43 years old, and if my parent, my grandparents, if they were ever proud of me, I feel like tonight is the night that they're. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for being Thank you so much. Wow. All right, well, here are the takeaways. Number one, the most impressive thing in the world is love and courage. Our legacy is our resonance, our compassion, our passion, and our conviction. Number two, the only thing that you have control over is your own conduct. The outcomes are in God's hands. When you have faith in that, you can feel peaceful and content within yourself, which is ultimately the objective as long as you continue to be of service and just keep doing the next right thing. Number three, every time you get knocked down, stand up again. That's when you can never be defeated. Number four, choose to be authentic. That's the only way you're going to know if you belong. Number five, what other people think or say about you is not your business. You just can't worry about it because it's irrelevant. Number six, let's stop the hate. Let's find out what we have in common. Let's work together in a positive way. We need to transcend the narrow self-interest and see ourselves as one community, a community that would really come together because that is what it means to be part of this noble adventure. Number seven, great leaders don't look with their eyes. They look with their heart and from their heart, they can see for miles. Number eight, you're only someone because you're some of the one. There are not two sides. There's only one side and it's the side called humanity. It's called love. There's only oneness. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for allowing me to share with you whatever feels most loving, most honest, most enriching. We have really good episodes coming up. Uh, this Thursday, Jason Mraz will be on the podcast and uh, there's so much more. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening. And if you love the show or if there's something about this that's moving you, please leave a review and share. Share a link to this episode with your friends, text them, post about it on your Instagram. I'm so, so grateful, particularly today because of the magnitude of what was shared in this episode and also because today is my birthday and you have no idea how much you bless my life. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you soon.
can't dance. 